Welcome to this week's show. In this one, I have a conversation with tattoo artist Deb Yarian. Deb started tattooing in New York in 1979, back when tattoo culture was reserved for outsiders or what Deb calls carnival people. The tattoo culture then was predominantly male, and women usually found their way into the culture through a man, because men were the gatekeepers. More recently, those barriers have been broken down, making the culture more equitable. Today, Deb and her husband Don own and operate Eagle River Tattoo. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed to the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Deb Yarian. Early in Deb's career, her mom told her she didn't want Deb getting tattoos because she didn't want people to judge her by the way she looked. Deb responded by saying, If people are going to judge me by the way I look, then those aren't the kind of people I want in my life. Deb says that the difference between tattooers today and tattooers in the past is that their journey is different. When Deb entered the scene, there was a lot of inequality and even violence. Deb has a history with domestic violence, one that she tries to talk about as openly and honestly as possible. She talks about those seedier origins of the tattoo culture, the sanctity of the tattoo shop, and how people with tattoos need to be responsible for their actions if they don't want to be mislabeled. So here she is. Deb Yarian. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. One thing that I've heard from a couple people um, about you is that you're pretty selective about who you talk to. Is that true? Um, yeah, you know, I'm not, I not used to being interviewed and I, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to play humble, but, um, it's interesting to me that anybody wants to interview me. So, so yeah, I am a little selective. And so is this just kind of a way maybe for you to protect yourself? Uh, somewhat, but again, you know, I'm, I'm not that comfortable speaking publicly. So, um, 
I'm getting used to it. Mm -hmm. You know, when I first started uh, doing the podcast, I was not very comfortable with hearing my own voice, even though I had mm -hmm. been recording my, um, my interviews because, you know, I would do magazine articles and articles for newspapers and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so with my interviews, I had them all recorded and I had to get over this like self-loathing of myself. <laughs> mm -hmm. I understand completely because I'm very self-conscious of um, when I speak. Uh, I know you've interviewed um, my coworker and friend, Roger Sparks. Mm -hmm. He is so eloquent. He is a great speaker and, and he's a spokesman for so many people. But I find, even though I love reading and um, I, I my comp comprehension of words is fairly extensive. When I speak, I just have a limited vocabulary. And if I hear myself speaking, I hear myself saying the same words, even if I had, you know, even if I buy a thesaurus and look through one for alternate words, uh, if I'm writing, that's one thing. I think my writing sound, uh, translate much better than I speak. You're more comfortable with how you sound uh, on the written page than you are verbally. Absolutely. So I've been self-conscious, but I do think I'm getting a little better, especially when I think I, I had only done two interviews one years ago with my husband, and my husband is really uncomfortable, and he doesn't enjoy being in the limelight at all. So, But we did a... Um, an interview to get uh, where we were together and I was aghast at how many times I used space fillers and said the same thing over and over again. You know, so I was uncomfortable. You know, I think that that is a, um, an advantage of conversations like this where we're mm -hmm. just talking, you know, I have, Good. I have a bunch of pre-written questions, but more often times than not, I'll kind of stray from those. Like if we get on, I wish I had them. <laughs> <laughs> but these aren't, you know, these are these are not like hard hitting questions. I mean, I shouldn't say that. I think that things can be uncovered, you know, with mm -hmm. with normal conversations. But it's not like gotcha journalism, you know. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Well, I'm ready though, whenever you are. So we had originally planned on doing this podcast at your shop, Eagle River Tattoo. Uh-huh. But the pandemic had other plans, obviously. <laughs> I know. Isn't it amazing? I mean, who would have ever thought just a few months ago, a few short months ago, that it went from A to B? Mm -hmm. Just like that. It really is remarkable how much life has changed. Are you, um, I mean, what, what have you been doing during all this? Well, uh, I did my last tattoo March 17th, and I think that week they closed our business. So, and then I have health issues that um, my doctors have strongly recommend that I not return to work. Mm. Plus, I have an injury. I injured um, my arm, and it's just for the repetitive nature of my work which you wouldn't think is strenuous, but it is. So I've been actually going to physical. Well, once we were done sheltering in place, I um, began going to physical therapy for mm -hmm. my arm and doing physical therapy at home. 
And then I'm trying to stay busy. Uh, I have a, a anxious bulldog, <laughs> English bulldog. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, I think we're really extending his life. He's 10 years old because <laughs> uh, there have been people home every day. And um, so I just stay, stay busy with him. I'm trying to draw every day or at least trying to be disciplined. And But even I just had a shot at the um, hospital. So um, in my labrum, in my tendon. Mm -hmm. And so my physical therapist said even this weekend I shouldn't draw or paint. But just that kind of thing. I've been working since I'm 13, 14 years old. So... Um, I'm kind of really enjoying right now staying home. So that's what I've been doing. You said that you've been trying to draw every day. Have you found in your lifetime of being an artist that you will get on a path of maybe exploring one theme over another? Because I've been a tattooer for so many years, 40 years, I have found that um, I'm sort of stuck in that place where my um, drawing um, leans towards tattoo designs, whether, whatever the trend is. Or uh, And now there are so many um, uh, visual references that I'm influenced by. So I, it, my drawing goes along that way. Mm -hmm. But there are some things that I do just over and over. I love lettering. And uh, when I was younger, I wanted to design type, which thank goodness I didn't follow my uh, heart because I wanted to be a type designer, a medical illustrator, or a cartographer. And all of those are have gone by the wayside. You know, they've all, I think, computers have taken over for you know any of those so it's a good thing I didn't do any of those <laughs> but I love uh, writing are you ever nostalgic for like an earlier time like if you were to have pursued uh you know a career in fonts would you I mean you would have half to have been born in like you know um or at least an adult in like the 40s and the 50s or something like that. Right. And, you know, I am from New York City. So um, as far as being nostalgic, uh, one of my biggest regrets and something I still think of is there's a school in New York. It's called the Art Students League. And I had uh, wanted to go there when I was young. And mainly it's for fine artists, not not commercial, so t not type. But... Um, uh, but although I love the look of type from an artist standpoint, um, so I wish I had gone to the Art Students League and I, as a teenager, and I think that would have changed my whole life. You know, of course, you change one thing, you change everything. Mm -hmm. So I'm happy where I am right now. But yes, I am nostalgic uh, as far as uh, and regretful of that, of not having pursued something like that. I mean, it's something I could still do just for fun, you know? So that's why I said I do enjoy drawing type. How do you think your life would have been different if you would have gone to the Art Students League? Well, of course, then then my path would have been so different. You know, I, I've... Even now, you know, I would like to, I think of going back to school, going to um, 
let's say the University of Anchorage for fine arts classes like painting. And I'm sure I could take classes, but my life would have been different because of the people I, you know, I wouldn't have met. I have a huge family. I probably wouldn't have had my family. I wouldn't be in Alaska. So I imagine my younger self and, you know, I romanticize that if I had gone to school, I would have been in New York or traveling all over the world and making my way as a fine artist. But I think that's what all fine artists think. <laughs> and, and, you know, I would have probably wound up being a waitress or waiter to support my art um, supply habit. Yeah, I think that we all probably romanticize the, the path not taken. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and I'm happy with the path I took as far as uh, professionally and then, you know, of course, personally where I've ended up. Do you think that if you would have taken that path, then um, your life would have been a little bit more traditional? Mm, well, traditional, absolutely. If I hadn't gone into tattooing, I went into, I started tattooing in 1979. So that was very non-traditional and was for many years, especially for women. So if I had just gone into fine arts or commercial arts, definitely would have been different. What was it like for you coming up in the tattoo world in, you said 1979, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, uh, when I first started tattooing, there were only, that I knew of, a handful or not more than a handful of women, and everybody tattooing was really spread out. Now, you know, if you drive around even Anchorage, there's dozens of tattoo shops and and in Alaska well when I got up here in um, 2000 there were only a few but um, when I first started tattooing in a very short time I knew who was in each state so if you knew you were going to um, Minnesota, let's say, you knew, oh, this person is in Minneapolis and that person is, you know, on the other side of the state. And there were so few people. So it was a very small world. Um, and then there were even fewer women, you know, so f very few women tattooers. So, uh, and because everybody was so spread out and there was no computers, you didn't have the camaraderie of other tattooers except uh, if you did make friends uh, through other uh, other tattooers or an, an annual tattoo convention. Mm -hmm. You know, I have, I want to get back to that, uh, but I have a question that I wanted to ask you before that about tattoo shop culture, because it's something that I actually, I think of quite a bit. I have a few tattoos, and every time that I've gone into the tattoo shop now i'm very conscious of this you know if if i mm -hmm. walk in and it's got kind of like a bad vibe then i won't go there um but mm -hmm. when i was you know getting my first couple tattoos i was i didn't know any better right so right the tattoo shop culture has always reminded me of the snowboard and skateboard shop culture that i grew up in mm -hmm. where it's kind of this intrinsically cool place to hang out and that a lot of times it can make the people who work there have kind of a cool guy mentality and be an asshole to customers. Well, you know, 
I am really conscious of that. And when my husband and I opened our shop in Eagle River, that was one thing that stood out in my mind was for years when I walked into a tattoo shop because there were no uh, no computers, there was no social media, you had to f announce yourself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like if somebody comes into a shop, or at least I've always felt this way uh, for my environment, I want everybody to feel comfortable and feel welcome. And that's been shaped by the way I have been treated in shops as a tattooer. I don't think I should have to say, hey, I tattooed with this one or I know that one or, or you know, be cool to me, you know, when you're right. It's that cool guy attitude. And a lot of times I'm not wearing years ago if the way you could usually tell a tattooer was because they were the only ones that were heavily tattooed. Mm hmm you know, it's only in the, in the past 10, 20 years that you'll see somebody that um, is outside of the profession and is heavily tattooed body suits, um, sleeves, what have you. So, you know, generally, if you saw somebody that was heavily tattooed, you knew they were another tattooer and you behaved accordingly sometimes. But I've been in shops where, you know, the tattooers were so rude and I thought, as a tattooer, it turned me off. Can you imagine how you'd feel as a customer? Mm -hmm. You know, and I've never, I've, I really make an effort not to behave that way. I've always tried to make everybody, wherever I'm working, not only my own shop, you know, wherever I'm working, I want people when they walk in, you know, not to stand there like an idiot for 10, 20 minutes till somebody acknowledges your presence. You know, I don't want people to feel like I'm doing them a favor you know, and they're keeping me in business, mm -hmm. you know, and I meet that from a, a, I think that from a business point of view and just personally, I'd like to treat people how I want to be treated. And I know from walking into some tattoo shop, even now, you know, if I walk in and I'm by uh, sleeves are down and there's no indication that I have tattoos, you know, people People won't even say anything, won't even greet me. And it's funny because I've actually gone into shops and not wanted to be intrusive and not been waited on or not been talked to. You know, because I used to love to go to different shops all over the country. And uh, if I was visiting, I'd go into a local shop and get a T-shirt for my husband or one of my sons. And, um, you know, I would stand there sometimes for the longest time. And because I didn't look like somebody that was cool, I guess. Um, people didn't wait on me. But then afterwards, sometimes I would say, hey, I stopped by the shop or blah, blah, blah. And then people, oh, why did you, we, we would have loved to have gone out to lunch or, oh, well, I wish we knew you were coming. Mm -hmm. And I feel like saying, well, I was there for, you know, 10 minutes and nobody waited yeah. on me, <laughs> you know. I mean, it gets back to what you were saying about you didn't announce yourself. Mm -hmm. And you shouldn't have to. Mm-hmm. Of course, if it's, uh, if you have a mutual friend, you know, then of course I could see, you know, hey, I'm Jimmy's friend or whoever's friend. And that's, you know, that may make a difference or will make a difference because of your, your mutual connection. Mm -hmm. But just being in the business used to, it used to mean something, you know, now there's so many tattooers. So, you know, but still, I think you should be nice.
to everybody that comes in and every yeah i agree with you about that whole cool guy mentality and yeah skate shops music shops yeah they're all very similar you know the first time my very first tattoo uh my wife and i lived in reno for oh that's so funny that's one of the places i was talking about because my mom lives there really okay yeah, so I remember going into shops, and by the third shop I walked into, I com the uh, floor person or the receptionist asked if I could, um, if she could help me, and I said, you know, I don't know, I don't think I've been to so many shops with so many rude people in one place. Well, that's great because I uh, I had the worst tattoo experience the first time I got. Um, my dad used to own a, a snowboard and skateboard shop here in Anchorage and mm -hmm. in Juneau and Fairbanks called Borderline. And it had a, a logo, kind of like this swoosh. Okay. And so that was my first tattoo on one of my arms. And I went to this tattoo shop in Reno one day and the guy was just a complete asshole. Like it was... It was unnecessary how mean he was being, you know, like mm -hmm. um, he was like, sit here, put your arm here. And I was like, OK, you know, this is this is my introduction to, right. you know, this culture. I had no frame of reference for that. So I sat there and then as he's tattooing me, he's talking shit about the tattoo. He's like, well, what is this? And then I felt like I was on the spot like, OK, well, you know, it's this snowboard and skateboard shop that you know, really nurtured, you know, the snowboard and skateboard culture in Alaska, which is, which is totally unnecessary for me to have to, to have explain to that explain story. It. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sorry for your terrible experience. Oh, I've, I've since had wonderful experiences. So, but, oh, but it's experiences like that, that really, uh, paint your understanding or at least your initial understanding of any culture, right? Your introduction to it. Right. Do you still have that tattoo? I do, you know, and here's the thing, it's, uh, and I hope I'm not making it sound like it bugs me more than it does, because it doesn't bug me at all, mm -hmm. but he actually messed up the tattoo, uh, the guy oh, in Reno, okay. and then I had it redone by a buddy here in Anchorage who fixed it. Oh, good. Yeah, good. so. Oh, well, that's good. So now it's not even the first guy's tattoo anymore. Yeah, exactly. Because I always feel like... Um, the experience sometimes it, well you got a had a horrible experience and your tattoo was messed up so that's a double whammy mm -hmm. but but i often think that the experience and how you're treated by the tattooer and the atmosphere can um color how you feel about the tattoo for the rest of your life mm, okay and i've had tattoos covered for that reason you know not because i hated the person but be or the tattoo but because the experience uh i hated the music i hated the atmosphere i disliked the people were negative around me and so that i never looked at the tattoo and thought of thought of it fondly you know i didn't have fond memories of the experience so when i looked at the tattoo it wasn't something i wanted so my husband covered it for me that's that's super interesting you know i've i've never thought of that with that concept with a tattoo but i've done that exact same thing with stickers mm -hmm. you know i've I had a really bad experience or this sticker reminds me of something hurtful so i'm going to take it off and cover it up or just cover it up oh yeah yeah and and tattooing because so many people is it is an experience for them however why for whatever reason they're getting if it's just something um that they want to decorate their body or they want to remember an experience or a um 
a person, uh, whatever they're going through, and then to be marred by the actual procedure, mm-hmm. you know, it could really affect, I think, the way you look at it for the rest of your life. For sure. You know, it's actually, it's such a intimate experience to get a tattoo. Mm-hmm. And so when that experience, that intimate experience is, like you said, marred by something negative, you just want to get it out of your brain. You want to get it off your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so, but like I said, your tattoo has been, you know, like you said, you had a good friend redo it, fix what was bad. So now it's not that other person's tattoo. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's a lesson learned too, I think. So your all your experiences since then have been good? Yeah, they've been great, yeah. Good. Good. I think I I think a lot of tattooers, or at least I used to, sort of take ownership in the tattoo, you know, experiences in community. Mm-hmm. And when you hear negative things about it, you know, you you take a little bit of personal responsibility even though I didn't do it. So I'm always sorry to hear that. How often do you feel like you need to take responsibility? Like you hear a bad story and you're there to kind of like maybe fix that experience. Fortunately, not that often, you know, or well, that directed towards me or one of my clients comes in and they have had a bad experience and they want me to do something about it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. I think that the bad experience that comes from elsewhere and then you are kind of like the problem solver. Uh, very often, unfortunately, and whether it's um, fixing something, adding to something. And um, although I've been the recipient of, I've had, I know that I have had a customer that wasn't happy with something that I did. Maybe they didn't communicate to me exactly what it was they wanted or that when they got something else they were so much happier with it their end result you know wiped out any you know if they didn't like something that I did but but oftentimes I don't have too many uh, people that are traumatized Mm -hmm. by their tattooers although I have had them I mean I've had women come into me and because I'm a woman um, I think they felt more comfortable in my space. Anchorage and Alaska has, um, I think, an equal, if not greater, presence, women presence in tattooing. There are a lot of women tattooing in um, Alaska, which is unusual or used to be unusual. But, um, But a lot of times women have found, I had a woman well, I hope this isn't too weird, and if you have to cut it out, you will. But I had a woman come to me. She was, um, and she was like a, a not a, if not a police officer, you know, working for Department of Justice somehow. And she had gotten a tattoo. She had been through a traumatic experience of a domestic violence where she had actually been shot in the breast. Mm and went to a tattoo studio to cover up the scars. And um, the person that was doing the tattoo, she was already in a uh, vulnerable situation, but while she was getting tattooed, 
his friends came in, uh, some men, and he said, oh, come look and see how hard my job is, you know, because he was a, she was a pretty woman and she was, uh, I think, partial state of undress. Mm-hmm. And because of that situation, she stopped getting tattooed by him. You know, I don't think she got up out of, out of the chair right then, but after that day, she never went back. And she had me cover everything that he had done because she felt so uncomfortable and so vulnerable. Um, you know, yeah, I get a lot of people that haven't uh, gotten what they wanted. Sometimes you don't, aren't able to communicate to the artist because so many tattooers in Alaska especially do custom work versus what uh, what was pretty traditional in tattoo shops where you'd go in and choose something off the wall. Now um, I would say most of uh, the shops here do custom work meaning you bring in your idea or um, some sort of visual reference and the artist draws it for you. But um, it's so important that you convey to the artist what's in your mind by uh, having some visual representation. Because if you don't, you know, somebody will say, oh, I want something beautiful and feminine. Mm-hmm. Well, your idea of beautiful and feminine isn't necessarily my idea of beautiful and feminine. So we have, you know, to be on, have to get on the right track. So I think that's one of the main things is that people don't get exactly what they want. And so then they want somebody else to make it what they want. Mm -hmm. When did you notice that shift in the tattoo world from coming into a tattoo shop and picking out a tattoo you know, from the wall, from, from a book in, in a more traditional way, like you were talking about, rather than coming in with something, you know, personally drawn? I think that there was a huge shift after 2000. And, and um, I'm going to say 2005, 2010. I don't remember when TV shows about uh, there were tattoo competition shows and and an influx of uh of um tv media like reality television yes real sorry reality television and i think that changed a lot for the tattoo business because it showed people whether it was realistic or not it it brought people inside a tattoo shop and because it was uh, um, people speaking with the tattooer and about what they wanted and why they were getting it. Uh, People uh, who wouldn't normally go into a tattoo shop felt more comfortable going in. Mm -hmm. And um, I think uh, that's when it shifted because I think not necessarily the tattoo tattooing procedure but the difference in the demographics of people getting tattooed Mm -hmm. that's what shifted more than anything do you think that those shows maybe demystified the tattooing shops oh absolutely okay yeah i wasn't a big fan when they first came out i'm still not a big fan of them um I mean, I don't hold it against anybody that's on them. 
you know, I have some friends and acquaintances that have been on the shows. Um, and, you know, again, I don't hold it against them. But the sh you're right. I do think it demystified tattooing. It made it uh, mundane. What a lot of people enjoyed about tattooing and why they were getting into it or why they were getting tattooed became a very commonplace. It was really funny. I could remember after the shows came on, people that wouldn't talk to me normally were coming up to me in the supermarket. Really? Yeah. My husband and I used to, uh, we have a big family. And when uh, we first opened our shop in Eagle River, it was 2011. And at the time, we still had two children in elementary school. And our the school is... Um, right across the street from our shop. Mm -hmm. And, um, but our children were in an optional program and we had to volunteer quite a bit. So we were volunteering hours, uh, many hours a year. And I even was the um, like head of the uh, parent group for our program. And at one point I requested that we have somebody else that could uh, head it with me like a co-chair co-chair of the optional program because I knew that there would be people that would um, weren't comfortable uh, with the fact that I was heavily tattooed. And so I had a not another parent that would be the go-between with some parents that weren't comfortable. And um, when we would have career day, you know, where parents would come in and, and speak to the students Mm -hmm. I volunteered and I wound up in the uh, guidance counselor's office, <laughs> you know, so she could oversee or, yeah, oversee what what I was uh, talking to the children about and, you know, what visuals I brought in, as opposed to, let's say, the volcanologist and the um, policeman and the fireman. Mm -hmm. And it was funny because my children think it's so... Well, now they're tattooers, but when they were kids, I might as well have been a shoe salesman. You know, other <laughs> other kids. Well, your mom, look, right? And, yeah. and and dad's a tattooer too. So yeah. so other people thought it was so cool, especially with those TV shows. But my kids were it's just mom and dad. But it was funny. So, what do you think about that? the The fact that tattooing has become more normalized has it made your life any easier or what do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I guess it would depend on when I was asked. When I first happened, when I first got into tattooing, for good or for bad, it was very, um, it was mysterious. It was like a secret club, hmm. I guess. If I was at an airport and I saw somebody that was heavily tattooed, I generally knew that they were a tattooer. And if we got into a conversation about where they were from, we probably had mutual friends. And that was anywhere in the country. Um, I used to belong to a uh, association where it was a worldwide association and there were only a thousand members. It was a closed society. And so we would have a convention every year and people would travel from all over. And that was it. I mean, a thousand people worldwide. Now there's thousands upon thousands of people. So 
I guess it would any society or any um, group that uh, is infiltrated with, um, you know, so many people, it just, it takes away some of what's special about it. Mm -hmm. And not that it was a good thing that you were, uh, it was difficult to rent a building. It was difficult to buy a house. Uh, when I bought, when I bought my first house, in um, 1980, late 80s, I couldn't get insurance on my house through the normal means because of what I did for a living. And not that, again, not that that's a good thing, but it just shows you how far things have come. I mean, I think legally, uh, if you have a mortgage, somebody has to cover your house so that you have a group of uh, uh, insurance companies that, uh, whoever will pick because they have to take care of it. But, um, you know, there's things like that, you know, not being able to, um, you know, as I said, represent my, my children's school or what have you. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's being in that group and persevering. Um, I guess it would be this, same any business, you know, before if it, you had to work hard to be able to make a living and, and, uh, and persevere. And then it, if it becomes easy, and then anybody could do it, then, um, then what was special about it has changed. Now, I'm not saying there aren't many gifted people. Oh, there's so many great tattooers. Now, I think far more great practitioners and people doing work that we I never would have imagined. Mm -hmm. So that's a great thing. You know, so I think the artistic abilities were really limited at a certain time just because of the people that got into tattooing. Mm -hmm. You know, people who got tattooed were generally at one point limited to uh, um, the armed services, blue collar workers in the United States anyway. I feel the pretty much the exact same way about snowboard and skateboard culture. When I was younger, it was, you know, there was a mystique to it. It was, it was kind of some of the, not degenerates, but people who didn't have any other place to go. So they found mm -hmm. this home and skateboarding and snowboarding and it was kind of theirs. And then as the years went on, it became more mainstream. Right. Like the motorcycle community. Um, for for many, the you know skaters, um, like you said, snowboarders, um, even you know punk music, mm -hmm. and then when it becomes wildly accepted and commercialized, you know now you could go to the mall, yeah, and buy your skateboard in any mall in the United States. When I think that that opens it up to become homogenized, right? Mm -hmm. So more and more people get into it. And because I think it's more accessible, right? Like right. way back when you had to seek this thing out and then it became yours rather than you go to the mall and you walk by a window and you're kind of offered this culture. Oh, right. I, I It's so funny because I could remember 
dressing a way a certain way when I was a teenager in New York City and you know going to concerts and what we would wear and then over the years I've seen some of the clothing you know become the the fashion mm -hmm. and you can um so it's it's funny because you could used to be able to tell people by the way they looked mm -hmm. and and now as you said it's become homogenized so everything that's been a little bit off or a little um you know uh, outside of society i guess there's really no you really have to push the boundaries to go outside of society now and that's not necessarily always a good thing now you know, one one point that I think uh, is is important is that you know the the core of snowboarding and skateboarding, and I, and I would imagine it's it's the same with tattooing, mm -hmm. is the that core you know um, group of people that get into it for the right reasons still exist. They're just mm -hmm. kind of they're among kind of the kooks as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. I mean, you I. Yeah, I would still say there are people that that are the fringe, you know, that are are that get into those things because they fit in. You know what? What's that expression? You know, get in where you fit in. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you don't belong, don't belong. You know, I like those sayings, mm -hmm. and it's true. But um, yeah, so I I don't mean to sound negative. No, so. I don't think it's negative at all. I think oh, that uh, when when something is uh, offered en masse to a large group of people, you inevitably get more and more people into it. And I, you know, so I brought up skateboarding and snowboarding and you brought up how you think that there is probably more really good tattooers nowadays. But I mean, when you average out how many people are involved in tattooing now, it makes sense that there'd be more good people doing it. And that's I think true. that that same thing is absolutely true for skateboarding and snowboarding. And I think that that just elevates that sport or, mm -hmm. you know, the tattoo culture. So ultimately I think it's a good thing, but, um, it's easy to be nostalgic. Oh yeah. And I, and I think I, because I think people take ownership, you know, and they feel like it belongs to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's like building a house, you know, a lot, you know, when you came and you started building it, you know, you started from the bottom up and, you know, you're hammering the nails and uh, putting the roof on and uh, drywalling and what have you till you build this. And now other people, they could just get to come in and they're, um, you know, what is it when you come and you live in an apartment without... Um, paying squatting yeah now they're just sort of squatting and and claiming the same ownership mm -hmm. and of and again i'm not saying that they haven't worked hard you know but when something was more difficult or, or harder to come by um you know, probably the same thing with skateboarding to you know you couldn't just go uh, to the mall and buy you know whatever you need to build this or if something broke you know maybe you had to fabricate it and now everything is accessible so which is great you know but um but your it's it's the journey is different that's all absolutely yeah you know i wanted to get back to what you had mentioned kind of earlier on in this conversation about being 
a woman in the tattoo scene in 1979. Okay. So what was it like being a young woman at that time in that culture? Uh, I think I started out saying that I hadn't been in many shops and I think tattooing um, at that time, because it wasn't mainstream, there were uh, subcultures Mm-hmm. of tattooing and the person that I um that introduced me to tattooing was in the motorcycle community and uh that is not always a, a woman friendly place so I had to just because this is how the world was then I I liken it to if you ever watched an episode of Mad Men mm-hmm. on TV, that's just how the world was. There are probably very few women, police women or roofers. So in a male-dominated business, and um, our, my clientele was mainly men, you had to put up with a lot of uh, misogyny, and um, but also you had to be one of the guys. Okay. It was very, I found myself in an interesting position. Been many times somebody would refuse to get tattooed by me because I was a woman or ask to get tattooed by me, which that wasn't always great either because I was a woman, you know, whereas people would take perhaps liberties in what they would say to me and not say to my male counterpart. Okay. Um, like what kinds of things? Uh, specifically, like one thing I know, I hate to curse, but uh, um, uh, I can remember being in a shop where I would have been the person that would have done the best job for what the man was asking for. I worked in Daytona on and off for about 10 years, Daytona Beach, Florida, where it has bike week every year and has a huge motorcycle community. Thousands of bikers come every, I think, March or April and have for, I don't know, over 50 years. And um, so a lot of bikers, I remember specifically a man coming in and asking for something and I would have been the one that would have done the best job. And he said, I I would never let a twat tattoo me. Really? Yeah, just like that. Like as if that, uh, no, I would never get tattooed on a Tuesday. (laughs) It was like, you know, and but I, I and of course, inside, I was enraged. But it was in the you know it was the eighties at this point, or yeah, the eighties, and you're surrounded by a bunch of outlaw bikers, and this man has this makes this statement. So all I could do is say, you know, okay, Joe will do a good job, or Jim will do a good job, and walk away. Just shrug it off. Just shrug it off because, first of all, you're not going to have an argument mm-hmm. with this person if this is the way the person thinks. And if that's the way the person thinks, I'm certainly glad he announced it before I had to sit in a chair with him for two hours. Yeah, now you know your enemy. Exactly. And um, and there's a whole movement going on now in tattooing. I'm sorry, I'm jumping ahead. Oh, no, but, no, you no know, it's fine. Where people are, you know, outing people that have um, been... Um, abusive behavior, mm-hmm. you know, by tattooers or uh, or racist behavior. And at the time, it was rampant. So people would 
you know, talk about your, you know, ask me about my body parts, you know, and, oh, nice breasts, you know, and I'm being uh, polite here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, talk about, you know, how I looked or, you know, what I could do. Just being completely inappropriate. Absolutely inappropriate. And it's very interesting because my daughter, I have, I've had five sons and one daughter and my daughter is 21. She's my newest tattooer mm-hmm. in our family. She just started this year. And I have, we've talked about what uh, tattooing was like in the past because it was not uncommon in the seventies, eighties, you know, at least for me, I don't know what was going on before that, but I can only speak from my beginning to have a woman come in any shop USA and ask to trade for tattooing, you know, to trade her sexual favors. Really? Yeah. For her tattoo. Now being the only woman in most shops, I used to argue constantly with my male um, coworkers because I would say if a prostitute if a sex worker comes in and wants to trade for your work, then I can understand, okay, you are trading your professional goods for their professional goods. But if a girl works in a fast food restaurant or, you know, girl or boy, whatever, works at a fast food restaurant or, um, you know, at a skating rink, mm-hmm then that's their job. They're not a professional sex worker. So why are you trading? You know, why are you giving your work away? Mm-hmm. Do you, I, mean, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a logical way to look at a crazy situation. Yeah. But I had said that that never happened to me as a woman. I have never had a man or woman ask if they could trade, you know, my tattooing for their sexual favors. And the other day, my daughter said on a dating site, somebody said, oh, I think you're really cute. Oh, I hope she's not going to be embarrassed, but I think it's funny. She said, <laughs> uh, um, I think you're really cute, and I see that you're a tattooer, and I think that's really cool. Um, would you like, I'd like to get tattooed, and I would you consider letting me service you for that And so she had to tell me because she thought it was funny and I thought it was funny. And her father said, uh, he could pay you and service you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I don't know. She works with her dad, you know, with us. But, uh, but I was shocked, you know, so I thought that was pretty funny, but yeah, but going back to the, uh, eighties, it was, you know, it was really tough working with a bunch of men, uh, only because I think a lot of the men, even that I worked with, spoke to me differently than they spoke to their co-work- their male coworkers. Um, you know, just maybe a little condescending or patronizing. And um, maybe because they would think that I would be less confrontational. Do you think that that mentality kind of, permeated the the tattoo culture because of some of its maybe seedier origins yes i do okay i think because um i have often said i think most women that got into the tattoo business years ago got in with the help either of a male a trusted male friend 
a husband, a partner, a mentor, as opposed to coming in by themselves. It wasn't safe to walk in in most or I shouldn't say most because I haven't been in most shops, but in many shops then. Mm-hmm. And even when I've been, I've uh, gone looking for jobs, you know, when I would move to a different town and go in to a tattoo shop, a lot of times I would, you know, just walking in, I wouldn't feel comfortable going in alone. And then, you know, wound up working there and I was fine. But as I said, the majority of people that were getting tattooed were usually drunk servicemen, blue collar workers, uh, bikers, you know, uh, leather people and the like. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I think that that shaped it. And so now of course things have changed and I think for the better that it's a much safer usually much safer environment and I people think people are informed and because there's so many tattoo shops I don't think you have to put up with bad behavior just to get a tattoo so that's a positive repercussion of the homogenization that we were talking about earlier right yes absolutely because I do think that uh now that well also that and accountability Mm -hmm. because um you know, bad behavior is is not acceptable. I think women, young women and men that are going into shops now aren't, hopefully aren't going to be silent about that kind of behavior. So then people are on, people are, on, are there on their better, on better behavior. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I worked for a guy in the ni- early early 90s i i tattooed a woman she was a drill sergeant so she wasn't a a um she was a strong woman to be able to be in that position and i was tattooing her and she told me that the man that i worked for and she was there with her husband and they were talking and, and when she um showed me her tattoo and i was working on something and i asked oh do you have any more tattoos and she said she had gotten tattooed at this the studio i was working in and she showed it to me and um, i asked who did it and she told me the man that i worked for and um, she said that when she got the tattoo he asked that she um, step into you know a private room and so that she he could see the color of her nipple so that he could match the pigment for, you know, like a, a tattoo of a flower or a, a rabbit or something. Unfortunately, I burst out laughing just because I knew my boss and I thought it, it was a crazy, you know, it was a ridiculous request. Mm-hmm. And something, you know, it had nothing to do with the tattoo. But the fact she went ahead and she did it. She went and she showed him, you know, her body before she got tattooed, believing him in this request. Yeah, he took advantage of her. Absolutely. So, and and I think that was fairly common at us, you know, I don't feel like I'm giving away any, uh, you know, secrets here, trade, you know, secrets or or anything that I should be ashamed of because I never did anything like that. But I think women walking into studios now would are a little more savvy 
and um, and aware of what's appropriate and inappropriate. And and I think so many tattooers would make women. Um, Oh, okay, take your shirt off or take your pants off, you know, just to get a, a tattoo where they could have easily accommodated them by moving their sleeve or moving moving their pant leg or mm. something. So, yeah, I think um, there were different kinds of people involved in it. And so being a woman, uh, for the most part, I think helped normalize things. Mm-hmm and uh, made progress for the women coming in and getting tattooed. But I can recall in the first 10 years that I was tattooing, uh, women coming in and wanting a tattoo, let's say on their arm, and the majority of men refusing to do it because that would ruin the woman somehow. Oh, really? Yeah, so they would only do it in a place and maybe this was for their own uh, pleasure, but they would only do it in, you know, uh, where your clothing would cover. Maybe on your shoulder blade, on your breast, on your hip, on your buttocks, and possibly your ankle, you know. But um, a lot of women would come in and say, I want a tattoo here, and they would be talked out of it. It kind of sounds like a lot of men who were in uh, into tattooing back in the day uh, and maybe maybe it's still like this to a certain extent but they're just kind of like creepy shitty old men well it does sound like that doesn't it <laughs> and, and and i don't think that i think that you're talking about you know maybe a minority uh, absolutely of... yeah the most of the people that i worked with um were fine good people and to my knowledge you know for the most part, yeah, there were there were quite a few, mm-hmm. but um, but things were very different then, and a lot of people that got into tattooing um, were carnival people, you know, that traveled, and you know those weren't always the best people either. I mean, you were it was the fringe, mm-hmm. you know, maybe drugs. You know, every so often I'll see something a post and somebody will say. You know, oh, don't hire this one or that one. He's into drugs, and I think, and I joke that if um, if you didn't hire anybody because of their drinking or their drug issue, the there'd be no tattooing at all in the world. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, like and no music. <laughs> you know, but but now I guess we're all you know everybody's a little more accountable, which is good. So. And that's why I said here in Alaska, there's so many women tattooing and not that women can't behave badly. They can, you know, but um, for instance, we had a woman come to our shop. Um, She had gotten tattooed in our shop before, but she came, uh, she called or came in crying because she had gone to another shop and started getting tattooed. She was very nervous. She doesn't like the discomfort of it. So she was having a hard time sitting still, you know, and not moving or not complaining. And the woman, the young woman who was a fairly new tattooer, put her machine down and said, I'm not going to tattoo you anymore. So perhaps she had like done one line or two lines. Mm -hmm. And so she, now the woman is stuck here, you know, with a half 
not even a half finished tattoo. And she came into our shop and spoke to my husband who had tattooed her before. And he um, wasn't able to do it right then because it was new. But, uh, you know, she waited uh, till it was healed and my husband fixed it or finished it and fixed it. But, you know, by talking to her, so she's comfortable explaining, you know, okay, what we're doing now. If she needed a break, we gave her a break. But uh, the other woman misbehaved, you know, in my opinion, mistreated her. And, and uh, the, you know, she, that's part of the job. People are uncomfortable and sometimes nervous and afraid. Mm -hmm. And you have to have somewhat of a bedside manner. And this woman didn't. So I spent some time going through your Instagram. Mm -hmm. And you've posted about this in your Instagram is public, so I hope it's okay to ask you about it. Mm -hmm. If it's not, we can totally skip over it. Okay. But you've made a few posts recently about domestic violence and your experience with it. Mm -hmm. You end one of your posts by talking about the fight or flight response to danger and how ignoring that fight or flight response only makes the situation worse. Mm-hmm. Would you mind talking about that situation in as much or as little detail as you'd like and how you ultimately responded to it? Um, well, I was, I was in a relationship prior to, it's like my, I had a different life. So till I was 32 years old from the time I was 19 till almost 32, I was involved with somebody who was, um, um, an abuser who, you know, so I was involved in an extremely violent relationship, not on my part. I wasn't violent and, um, it wasn't reciprocal and it was something, you know, people often ask, you know, well, why didn't you leave? How did you get into that? Well, generally you, somebody doesn't walk up to you in a bar or a restaurant and say, hi, I'd love to meet you and punch you. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not how they operate. Usually they're charming or, or, you have no idea that this is going to happen. And um, so I was involved in a very, very violent relationship. And I do speak on that quite a bit because um, it helps me because I think for many years I felt embarrassed or ashamed because I was stuck in this relationship or I somehow um, took responsibility for it because I wasn't able to leave. As far as speaking on the, the flight, I was raised with corporal punishment. My dad was very strict. And I was raised in the 60s where you know, children should be seen and not heard. Um, you do what I say to do, you know, and that's how it is. While you're in my house, this is how it is. And so we, my brother and I were raised with a very, very strict hand. So when I got married, or excuse me, when I got involved with this person, and the first time or the first few times he displayed violent behavior, it was always followed by um, an apology or um, excuses of, um, uh, you know, how much he cared for me, and if it was only because how much he cared for me that caused him to react so passionately. Mm -hmm. And the way that he frames it is, it's not his fault, it's your fault. 
Right. Yeah. yeah. If I wouldn't have done that and if he didn't love me so much or he didn't care about me so much or the thought of losing me was too much, you know, so he acted out and he was enraged because he could not control himself because of how he felt about me and uh, and how my behavior uh, somehow dictated his behavior. And so, you know, putting the responsibility on me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and this is something that I endured for 12 years. You know, of course, it wasn't every day. And I have a very strong personality. When I say a strong personality, I speak my mind. I'm not, I'm not um, shy, you know. So it, days would go by, months sometimes, where there was no physical violent behavior. But generally, when when you are in that kind of a relationship, by the time you're re, you're, the violence has escalated, you are. Um, I don't know. If, I'm not familiar with a lot of the words, but I'm going to use the word groomed. You're used to it at that point. You're used to it. Yeah, you're used to it, and then you think, well, if I behave, you're always trying to change your behavior say, okay, um, if I behave this way, and perhaps if I am uh, quiet, or I don't dress this way, or I come home early, then that won't lead to this behavior. You know, so you're always uh, looking to yourself. And when I speak of, let's say, flight or fight, you know, when people speak about women that are in relationships, um, violent relationships, and for many years, it's, it wasn't until I'd say uh, very recently that society has changed the way they think. And even still, there's still so much victim blaming. But I often compare it to, let's say, a, a prisoner of war camp. You know, here you have thousands of um, trained soldiers that are in a prison of war camp. You don't have thousands of guards. You know, maybe you'll have one guard for every hundred prisoners. Mm-hmm. But after time, everybody, you know, everybody just stays there. You know, they they're they're not fighting. They're not trying to escape. They're not trying to overpower their the guards that are keeping them captive. Their spirit has been broken. Absolutely. And I mean, these are trained soldiers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing when you see, if you're in a theater and you're watching something about slavery or, um, uh, and every, you know, people in the audience are saying, oh, I would never put up with that. I wouldn't do that. Yes, you would. And that, and generations of people have, you know, so many times, if I talk about domestic abuse, what I've, what I've experienced, I've also experienced sexual abuse. And, um, and one time, for instance, in seventh grade, I was a, a man asked me for directions. He called me over to his car, asked me for directions, and he was exposing himself and masturbating. And when I went in and I went to the office and I told my principal and she called the police. The first thing the police asked me was, what was I wearing? Jeez. You know, I was 12 or 13 years old. Yeah. What I'm wearing has nothing to do with somebody else's poor behavior. Mm -hmm. 
you know so so fortunately um there were days where you know there weren't every day wasn't horrible but when you're in a situation in a relationship uh like i was there are no good days you know when did you realize that it wasn't you and that it was him uh, you know i still think i i've been diagnosed with ptsd and anxiety disorder and i i i am an advocate for you know i really think people should go to therapy and um especially you know if you need it there are so many different groups that you could seek out but even still i will relive some situations and think what could i have done differently you know so in a way i think that's still self-blaming and here I am, I've been out of that relationship for, you know, almost 30 years. But you can't live that way for 12 years and not have an effect on the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Or even your upbringing. You said you were, you were brought up in that authoritarian household. And so if you're brought up that way, it's, it's ingrained. It's a part of you mm -hmm. at that point. A absolutely. And my uh, dad is gone and my mother is um 82 and uh you know i don't like to discuss it with her and she was never the um disciplinarian but you're absolutely right i mean you, when you are a girl raised that way with violent behavior and told it for your own good then when you why is it any different if you meet a man a partner why do you expect things to be different? Mm -hmm. You know, and especially when that's the um, the way they like would groom you or whatever. And I and you said something before about having your spirit broken. It is. It's like a wild stallion or a wild dog. You're attracted to something because of its uh, spark or its behavior. I was very wild when I was a teenager. I, and when I say wild, I was just, uh, you know, going to concerts, music. Uh, I was in New York City. I was uh, working in bars. I was, um, you know, into the music scene. Uh, and um, I think I just didn't have, I didn't have, oh, I, I didn't have that, um, a filter yeah not only a filter but i think it's what you're like your, your receptor like your danger um you know when the hair goes up on the back of your neck you know they say so many people get um young women especially get murdered because they're polite mm. you know they they don't pay attention you know you walk into somebody's house or you get into somebody's car and something feels off naive Maybe not. Yes, I was very naive and being naive and having no filter don't always go well together. <laughs> so, so yeah, I endured that for 12 more years, you know, 12 years in my adult life. And, um, the person I was with shot a coworker five times in, um, our place of business. Uh, tattoo studio I was working in and at that point and the person's fine now and I don't 
I hope has no um, lasting um, problems because of that uh, being shot. But uh, because of that, that was the end of my relationship. And I was able to seek a divorce. And, um, you know, I still saw the person a couple of times, a few times after that, securing my safe future but I've been away from them for 29 plus years. Do you think that your experience with domestic violence and abuse has helped you recognize it in other people? Uh, yes, for the most part. And it's interesting because now I have become very aware. I've been in a wonderful relationship with my husband It'll be 29 years that we're married in uh, this November. And um, I have um, children and we live here and, you know, and I have wonderful friends and I mm -hmm. have a really good, great support system. And uh, so I'm not, I haven't been around many people that I feel that kind of a vibe from. I've had a couple of people walk into my shop where I've, you know, wish they would leave. And, and for me, I knew there was something off about them, you know. Like they were angry. They were the perpetrators of domestic violence. Absolutely. Okay. I were, I, because I was aware of my strong reaction. You know, I've had only one or two men come into my shop where I would not have wanted to be there by myself. And even when there were other people, I had a funny thing happen. Okay, I was in my shop and, um, you know, we, it was the morning and we were uh, all the other tattooers. Everybody was getting ready to work. And this man came in and uh, he was staying at a nearby hotel. And I think, you know, the correctional facility is in Eagle River. So I think maybe when people get out of there, sometimes they linger. You know, I don't know if where, you know, they stay in Alaska, you know, or, or Eagle River. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, this man came into the shop and it was years ago. And there was a girl who was about to get tattooed, young girl, much younger than he. So perhaps he was in his 40s. She was only, you know, a young 20-year-old girl. And he, this is who he chose to strike up a conversation with. And he uh, was uh, trying to scare her about how uncomfortable it was going to be, which I thought was inappropriate. And I just didn't like the, you know, the, the way I felt around him. And um, we didn't encourage his hanging out, mm -hmm. you know, but I told a few people that this guy came in and I really felt uncomfortable and I, and, uh, you know, such a strong feeling. And we have a lot of, uh, police officers or state troopers, um, military people that we tattoo. And one day we happened to have like a group of three policemen getting tattooed or uh, one uh, f uh, a flight nurse, so like a trauma flight, emergency flight nurse, male, and then uh, a one female tattooer and two, I mean, excuse me, female police woman and um, two policemen. And I was mentioning that this man had come in, you know, while I was tattooing the person. And I was saying uh, this man had come in and gave me such a terrible feeling. And I don't remember what his name was, but I 
mentioned it to them. And I said, oh, uh, he made me so uncomfortable. Well, coincidentally, the man came in. And the person sitting next to me that I was tattooing, he said, that's him, isn't it? And I said, yes. And all of the people like got a really bad vibe about him. Anyway, he left because I think that the ability for them to tell that he was some sort of predator mm -hmm. also gave him the ability to know that he was surrounded by, you know, state troopers and policemen. Yeah. <laughs> so he left and we never saw him again, but they all felt it too, you know? So, so I think I do have the ability to, um, you know, it's not like a superpower, <laughs> but I just feel like living in that kind of a life for so long. And talking about being naive, I can remember right before the end of the relationship, I was driving home one night and I always drove home the same way. You know, I called before I left my shop and then I drove home and I lived in a subdivision where I had to drive over railroad tracks. So you know how you have to slow when you get to the railroad tracks. Well, this one mm -hmm. evening when I got to the tracks, there was a car pulled over to the, to the side and two men were standing outside of the car. And as I slowed, one man stepped in front of my car and the other man went to open my door and I, um, you know, hit my foot on the gas and pulled away. And when I got into my house, I went directly to the phone to call the police because I thought, you know, my goodness, what happens if, you know, an old woman or somebody, you know, is in the same situation and, mm -hmm. and they hurt her. And the, per the person that I was with at the time, came over and he pressed his uh you know finger down on the receiver so i couldn't call and i was like what are you doing i have to call the police and he wouldn't allow me to call and i i had no idea i thought it was this strange don't call, you know don't call the police you know ratting on people but mm -hmm. It wasn't until a couple of years later that I was talking to my mother about it, and she said, you know, he probably had something to do with it, which makes perfect sense, because why would he care if I called the police when these people were endangering somebody? So, yeah, perhaps he wanted to see how I would react. Maybe they were going to do something. I don't know. He could have just been condoning it as well yeah like like these guys are are fine they're they're my people yeah having fun yeah yeah so yeah absolutely could have been condoning it and uh but i was very naive and uh not i wouldn't say innocent but perhaps it's just not recognizing that people can uh, people are evil mm -hmm. yeah exactly it's like um what parents try to guard their children from, you know, mm -hmm. let them be kids for a little bit longer before they realize, you know, how crappy the world can be. I know. And, and having so many children, I've had, I've been criticized because I'm a little overprotective. And I think I just do want to protect my children. All parents want to protect their children, but because I have experienced 
you know, such a, a negative and, and I don't know, I would say evil person, people. Mm-hmm. I never wanted my children to experience it. And, uh, you know, my oldest son is 40. And when I had somebody, uh, somebody was saying to me, oh, come on, you know, uh, you're, you're really going to make them paranoid. You're going to, you know, screw them up. And I always like, now I look at my son and I say, well, he lived to tell the tale Mm -hmm. and that's all I care about. You know, he's alive. My children are alive. Thank goodness. And, um, and they haven't experienced anything like that. And I hope they don't. And I think because I would recognize that kind of a person, I would not allow that kind of thing to go on. You know, if it was one of my children. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, whether if it was when my one of my children was young, I would I would literally get a plane ticket and we would go off backpacking through the Alps for two years. You know, we would do something to get them out of that situation and off that road. You know. But luckily, that never happened. Yes thankfully my son is my youngest is 19 my son and my daughter's 21 and then my other sons are uh 27 28 and 40 and they're all doing well knock on wood you know how do you feel now when you see young women getting into the tattoo industry do you ever feel like you need to mentor them maybe show them the ropes or do you feel like they need to learn their own way like you did well no i other than my daughter uh she's the only one that i've been personally on a day-to-day responsible uh i have worked with other women and and i have a lot of women that do that i'm friends with in social media and um i think the world's so different now that uh and young women are I, I shouldn't say safer but because um they just there's so many areas of support now mm-hmm. i mean if people ask me i try to help in any way i can uh not specifically i'm not talking about teaching people how to tattoo but people that are in the tattoo business that come to me or talk to me you know uh you know i have been able to advise some women and you know, what I think would help them in certain circumstances, then I, you know, I've been more than happy to help. Mm-hmm. You know, Deb, actually, do you, do you go by Deb or Deborah? I like Deb, Deb or Deborah. Okay. Cause I thought it, I thought it was Deb. I just didn't want to. No, I like that. I hate Debbie though. Okay. No Debbie. I will never no do Debbie. Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> so I have, um, I have one more question. Okay. It's, uh, I feel like it's a pretty softball question, but I think uh, it, it could be fun. So some tattoo artists have a personal rule not to tattoo someone's face, neck, or hands when the customer is young or new to tattoos. Do you have any personal philosophy about that, or will you tattoo anyone on any part of their body? Actually, I do have a personal philosophy, but it's really more based. I don't have anything set in stone. If somebody 
this is a shop thing. I rarely have anybody come in and ask me to tattoo their face. Hmm. It's just not something that we get a lot of requests for. I have done it in, I think, only two occasions in 41 years. And the one person was a reporter for, or not a reporter, like a photojournalist for uh, motorcycle magazines back in the um, 70s or 80s. And she wanted a tiny little star, not even a full, like, uh, it was like a starburst, Mm -hmm. tiny little starburst. And she was a real, like, tough old broad. And um, I don't say that negatively, but, you know, that's if you imagine like a, a woman, large Marge or, you know, from Pee Wee Herman or like a truck driver. She can handle her own. Yes. And she wanted it and I felt fine with it. So she got that. And then years later, a man wanted his wife's name along his uh, jawline. But he was heavily tattooed and it was somewhere that he could grow a beard. Mm-hmm. You know, so I was fine with that. If somebody, I have had people come in and ask for tattoos on their face. Somebody wanted the loser or something on his forehead. I said no. <laughs> just, yeah, just because it's not something I'd be comfortable doing. You know, mm-hmm. I would never look back and think, gee, I'm happy I did that tattoo. Mm-hmm. And as far as hands go, if somebody has no tattoos and they're young, you know, I have said, hey, you know, I'm not telling you you shouldn't get it. I'm just telling you that I'm not comfortable doing it. Mm-hmm. Because uh, if you don't have a job, you're not going to get one. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, things have changed now. Yeah, you could go into, for a long time, you could go into Nordstrom, you know, and um, get a job with tattoos all over but you can't go into mcdonald's you know and get a job so even though it's not my responsibility whether somebody can get employment lifetime employment i don't want to be the one you know causing them i don't want to ever have you know i don't want that on my conscience Mm -hmm. so uh but yet my husband had a woman came in she had no tattoos and she wanted a compass on the palm of her hand, and I think it was for her 50th or 60th birthday. Now I look at, you know, she, and she wanted always to know, you know, which way home was or something like that. And, um, you know, so she was an older woman, you know, she knew where her life was going. And, um, you know, it's, it's so personal. That's to each of their own, you know. I do say no, I do have my own, uh, I don't do anti any anti tattoos. What's that? You know, like uh, I wouldn't do a swastika or okay, a okay. Um, you know a, a lynched man or something. But I'll do pro tattoos. Mm-hmm. Something that you feel up is uplifting. But there, yeah. So there are few ta- many tattoos I have over you know through my uh, career said I didn't want to do, you know, and uh, not because I'm judging them, just because I have the the right and I have, I could choose what I'd like. Just like if I didn't feel that I was technically up to the job, I don't feel that I'm morally or um, emotionally up to it either. 
Mm -hmm. So I know that when I decided to get tattoos on my hands, Mm -hmm. my friend Corey, who's also a tattoo artist, kind of warned me that certain people will, from that point forward, look at me differently. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Maybe as irresponsible or a deadbeat or even like a convict or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be true as well? Well, you know, my son... My oldest son, I don't remember how old he was when he got his hand tattooed, but a friend of his, who's also a tattooer, said, what do you think of this? Don't you think that's crazy? You know, don't you think that's irresponsible that he's getting his hand done? And I said that with, you know, getting tattooed, there's responsibility goes with that. He has to be responsible for his actions. And yes, if people are going to judge him, then he that he has to he has to live up to that. You know what I mean? My my mother once said my mother doesn't like tattoos. You know, my family. I don't come from a family of heavily tattooed people. <laughs> and. Um, my mother said to me, well, I just don't want people to judge you by the way you look. And I said, if people are going to judge me by the way I look, those aren't the kind of people I want in my life anyway. So I feel like it's a great way to um, weed them out, or it was a great way to weed them out. Sure, you know, you if somebody's not going to hire you because you have your hand tattooed and they feel like that hand tattoo is going to get in the way of your being a great this or a great that, then that's their issue. Mm-hmm. There was a man, remember I said earlier that I belonged to that association? There was a man that was heavily tattooed in our association. I can't really recall who he was, but he, I, he was tattooed from his feet to his head. And he worked, um, he was one of the early tech people like in Silicon Valley. Okay. And they would let him come in at night to do his job because his appearance was upsetting to a lot of people. But they still made um, concessions because they needed him. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if things would be different now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I remembered that. And um, I know we've kind of gone all over the place here. I hope I've sort of stuck on track. Oh, no, this is this has been absolutely amazing. I um, I want to thank you so much for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you for having me and for making me feel very comfortable. And I hope I didn't use too many of those space fillers. Like, um, and, and, and you like, or like, well, I think I probably use some myself as well. I didn't notice. Did you have anything you wanted to add? No, no. Other than, you know, I'm really proud of my family of tattooers. That's about it. You know, I have four tattooers in Alaska. There aren't that many tattoo families in the country, let alone the, you know, in the world, let alone the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, not, you know, with the whole family tattooing. Sometimes people, if I meet somebody on a plane, then they say, well, what do you do? And I tell them, and then I say my whole family tattoos. They look at me like, you know, like we're acrobats in the circus or something. Carnival people is what you said earlier. Yeah, right. But, um, <laughs> but I'm really proud of it. And um, so 
I'd love to say that, you know, my husband works, we have our shop in Eagle River where one of my sons, Nick, and my daughter, Bella, work. And then my one son, Eli, works out in the valley. And my son, um, Matt, has a shop out in, up in Fairbanks. So we're tattooing all over, um, all over the state. Well, that's awesome. Um, thank you so much for talking with me today. And thank you. And also, thank you so much for your honesty. I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. And I hope your editing makes me sound good. Oh, you're going to sound great. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.